The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Order. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Friday, October the 14th, and you're very welcome to this weekend's politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and before we start, do remember you can find all our shows on irishtimes.com slash podcasts, or you can make sure that you'll never miss a show by subscribing to us on iTunes. Now... The state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother, guarantees in its laws to respect and as far as practicable by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. That is the full wording of the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which is the main item on the agenda of the new Citizens' Assembly, which meets for the first time at Dublin Castle this weekend. The Assembly is going to produce a report which will be considered by the Oireachtas as the Irish political and legal system continues again to struggle with the issue of abortion in Ireland. This narrative stretches way back, certainly to the very different Ireland of the early 1980s and perhaps even further, and the passing in 1983 of the referendum on that Eighth Amendment. We wanted to look at the roots of all this, and to do that, I'm joined by our former legal affairs correspondent and author of the first book on the history of our Supreme Court, Ruan McCormick. Afternoon, Ruan. Um, on the night that the referendum passed by a two-to-one majority, Brian Farrell hosted a discussion on RTE's current affairs programme, Today, Tonight. Well, what does it all mean? We've been a lot of talk about divisions and nowhere, perhaps politically, with the divisions more acute than within the Fine Gael party, with us two of the deputies who spoke up on different sides. Alice Glenn, looking now at the size of the victory, was it worth all the effort? Oh yes, I think it was, Brian. I'm overjoyed by the result and I thank God for the wisdom and generosity of the Irish people in that they have now enshrined in our constitution the same rights that you and I and everybody else enjoy and that is all, that was the aim and we have achieved it. And I would just like to take the opportunity to say to those people who, for whatever reason, uh, could not see fit to uh, to say yes, that it is my earnest wish, and I know that I speak for most people who have campaigned in this, that all of their fears will be proven groundless. Now, it didn't really work out that way in the end, and we're still tussling with the consequences of that vote in 1983, Rowan, but where did the pro-life movement and the, uh, the, the, the pro-life amendment movement, where did it begin in Irish politics? It goes back further than that. It does. The roots of the Eighth Amendment go back to 1972. In that year, uh, a young Dublin woman, May McGee, went to the High Court um, to challenge the legal ban on the importation of contraceptives. She'd been told by her doctor that if she had another baby, her life would be in danger. <clears throat> she attempted to import contraceptives from the UK, but when they arrived in Ireland, they were impounded by customs officials. And she went to court. Um, she got her lawyers involved. She went to court and she argued that uh, this was unconstitutional, that the ban was unconstitutional, and that she had uh, certain rights that made it invalid. And she lost in the High Court. She then took the case to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court said was that May McGee had a right, an unwritten right, that appears nowhere in the Constitution, to what it called marital privacy. And in many ways, this was the high point of something the Supreme Court had been doing for about 10 years at that point, which was discovering new rights in the Constitution that didn't actually appear in the text. Um, What's interesting for our purposes in the McGee case is that 
while Liberals applauded that decision as an advance as they saw it in Ireland's development, justifiably from their point of view, it came with an ironic coda in the form of the Eighth Amendment. And why do I say that? Because um, when the Supreme Court decided the McGee case, it, it, it did something very similar to what the US Supreme Court had done uh, a few years previously in a case called Griswold and Connecticut, where the US Supreme Court had pretty much done the same thing and found a right to marital privacy. But that's important because what followed Griswold and Connecticut in the US was Roe v. Wade. There was a direct line from Griswold and Connecticut to Roe v. Wade, where the Supreme Court in the US, in its famous decision, uh, legalized abortion across the United States. Um, Griswold in Connecticut was the authority that the US Supreme Court relied on in Roe v. Wade. And so um, what the Supreme Court did in Ireland immediately set off alarm bells in the anti-abortion lobby, the incipient anti-abortion lobby in Ireland. Um, there was an interesting debate in the pages of Studies, the academic journal in 1977, and this was the first mention I can find of this line of thought. And it was a debate involving William Binchy, who was, at the time was, um, he was a research um, assistant, I think, at the Law Reform Commission in Dublin. But he was also to become one of the leading voices um, on the anti-abortion uh, or pro-life side of, of these debates. And what William Binchy argued in that, in that article uh, in, in, in the course of that debate in studies was that um, there was a real risk after McGee that the Irish Supreme Court could follow the example of the US Supreme Court, a future Irish Supreme Court, that is, and use McGee to uh, legalise abortion in Ireland. So, I mean, that's very interesting because my, I, I'm, I, I differ from you, I think, in being just about old enough to remember some of these events in the, in, in, in the early 80s. And I don't think I was, I was completely clear at the time on the fact that the primary purpose here was to defend against what people on the pro-life side of the argument saw as the danger of a sort of, of a progressive judiciary, if you like, uh, possibly operating further ahead of where the population was at a given time. So the, the, the real fear was not necessarily that politicians would legalise abortion. It was that the right to abortion would be affirmed by, by a court. Exactly. There was a feeling at the time that politicians were fairly conservative on this issue. There was a feeling that neither Fianna Fáil nor Fianna Gael would in the immediate um, short term, at least, or medium term, would make any moves towards liberalising the regime. The fear was that in the hands of a future Supreme Court, the McGee case um, could lead to the legalisation of abortion. There's an interesting quote, which I might read, it's brief, uh, by um, by William Binchy in, that, in the course of that debate. He said, the Supreme Court in McGee was quite probably in advance of general public opinion. In the foreseeable event of some change in the attitudes in this country on the, quest on the question of abortion, the McGee decision constitutes live ammunition in the hands of a court which might again be ahead of public opinion. We might come back in a moment to that question about the, the, the difference between a fear of legislative change and the fear of, 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 of judicial intervention because it does come up about the wording of different different proposed ideas for, for, for what a referendum or what an amendment might, might ensue. But... The pro-life amendment campaign, it has to be said, was one of the most effective um, grassroots political campaigns in, in Irish modern political history. It certainly was. Um, and a few years passed, actually, it was a, almost a decade after the McGee case before they began to organise. But they developed over, over a number of years uh, a grassroots movement. Um, in every parish in Ireland, through the Catholic Church, um, um, associations at local level, you had people from the legal profession, you had people from um, medicine, uh, you had others who were on the fringes of the Catholic Church, lay people who were involved in the Catholic Church. And <clears throat> as the years passed, particularly in the late 70s, they began to organise. Um, 
The problem was, um, as Gene Kerrigan said at the time, they were all dressed up in their Sunday best. I'm paraphrasing him now, but they had nowhere to go because what could they look for? Abortion was already banned by law in Ireland. Um, you know, in other countries, uh, an anti-abortion lobby would look for a law against abortion. We already had that. So the question then becomes, well, what do you look for? The, what happened in McGee and the arguments advanced by people like William Binchy uh, stirred the anti-abortion movement and enabled them to coalesce around the demand for a constitutional change. So in their view, it wasn't enough to have a law banning abortion because that would still allow a future Supreme Court or future politicians to overturn it. Um, but if you had a constitutional block, if you locked it into the constitution, that ban, then it was a guarantee that a future uh, government or a future judiciary couldn't. And I suppose it. it was also seen as a bulwark against, I mean, the fact was that in the, for the, in the preceding decade, many, if not most Western countries had liberalised their laws on abortion considerably and abortion had been made legal in the United Kingdom. Of course, in the in, in the late 1960s, Roe versus Wade in the, in the United States and of course across Europe as well. So it was a, it was a sort of a, 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 a counter-revolution, a particularly Irish counter-revolution against what was the prevailing trend in, in most Western countries at that stage. I think you're right. In most countries, the impetus for change on abortion in this period was coming from liberals. It was coming from people who wanted to change the law so as to make it easier to have an abortion. In Ireland, it was different, as you say. Uh, the, 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 the impetus behind the, the referendum and the moves towards uh, uh, constitutional change all came from those who wanted a more restrictive regime or to retain and ensure that the restrictive regime remained in place. And they were very conscious in the anti-abortion lobby of what was going on elsewhere. They could see that Western attitudes towards abortion were becoming more liberal. They could see what the American judiciary had done uh, in Roe v. Wade. They could see what was happening in the, happening in the UK. And, and so it was all driven from that point. And in fact, it was a few years, only a few years after the anti-abortion lobby was properly organised that you saw any sort of um, organised coalition of uh, liberals who were uh, in favour of a more uh, liberal abortion regime uh, um, coming to the fore. And the other part of this jigsaw, which is very important to state, is that this argument really comes into the mainstream political domain at a time of great instability. Um, and uh, the pro-life uh, activists in particular were able to take advantage of that instability. They were, and they did it very skillfully. Um, the first meeting of what was to become the pro-life amendment campaign happened in, in uh, 1981 in Dublin. And the people who came together there, it was sort of an umbrella group comprising lawyers, um, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, lay people who had an interest and were coming from that perspective. You had organisations with names such as the Irish Catholic Doctors Guild, the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children, or SPUC. And SPUC was probably the main actor because SPUC had been working at ground level for many years leading up to that meeting in 1981. And so it had this network of people and activists across the country. And once they became organised, as I said, they quickly gravitated towards this idea of campaigning for uh, a constitutional amendment. And even though they were capable of bringing lots of people out onto the streets, I mean, we, have, we had lots of marches in those years on the streets of Dublin where they could easily get thousands of people out at short notice. The, the key to their campaign was political lobbying. And as you say, they played that game very skillfully. And it was... Uh, 
they were fortunate enough at the time that they are, they emerged when there was acute political instability in Ireland. And so every politician, every party leader knew that there was an election around the corner. There were three general elections within 18 months. Exactly. And what that does um, is it makes politicians vulnerable. It makes them receptive to the arguments that pressure groups are making, not least a pressure group uh, with a a local grassroots organisation and a pressure group that's able to mobilise thousands of people at a moment's notice. So what you had in reaction to that was the leaders of both main parties actually committed themselves to to having a pro-life referendum. They did. What the the, uh, pro-life amendment campaign did was they went to Charlie Hoy, leader of Fianna Fáil, and to Gareth Fitzgerald, leader of Fianna Gael. Hoy was the Taoiseach at this stage. Um, And they looked for commitments from them to hold a referendum. At this stage, we had no wording. They were just looking for a referendum. Um, they immediately got a commitment from Hawhey. They immediately got a commitment from Garrett Fitzgerald. The Labour Party was more equivocal um, and the, uh, the, the uh, Pro-Life Amendment campaign was to learn pretty quickly that they couldn't rely on the Labour Party. But um, they had this commitment from both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, uh, uh, pretty quickly. Um, but while Hawhey appears to have held firm in his uh, commitment to holding this referendum, Fitzgerald wavered. And so when uh, later on that year in late 1982, uh, when the coalition of of Fianna Gael and Labour replaced Fianna Fáil, even though it had been in the Fine Gael manifesto that they would have a referendum, once the programme for government was agreed with Labour, that commitment was missing. Immediately, the uh, anti-abortion lobby were up in arms. They looked for commitments from Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald said, look, don't read too much into this. You still have my word. But it was clear that he was wavering and it was clear that Labour weren't going to wear this or that it was going to be very difficult to bring them on board. Um, and there, was, there were differences within the Fine Gael party as well. Indeed, there were. Yeah, there were differences more so than in Fine, Gael, in Fine Fáil, certainly. And Fitzgerald was was already from an early stage struggling to, to, to keep a lid on, on those divisions and they were to co- become much more pronounced uh, as we got closer to the referendum in 1983. And of course that Fine Gael government falls over I think uh, the issue of tax on children's shoes on a budget. Hawhey is back in um, for a relatively short you know, short term government but towards the end of that government just before his government falls he, he uh, publishes the proposed wording for the referendum. That's right. We should probably say at this stage that by now you have the other side mobilising. You know, so you have uh, those who are in fa- against the idea of a referendum coalescing uh, for the first time. They're starting to meet in hotels in Dublin. You've got a lot of really prominent lawyers, um, barristers who came together. Uh, they were they were very involved in providing legal advice uh, for, for the rest of the campaign. You had doctors, you had nurses, um, you had people from civil society. The women Women's movement, of course, was really, really important. You had a lot of women's groups who, by this stage, I mean, they had been motivated for a long time, but they hadn't got this single campaign to to galvanise around until now. And so they all came together uh, and they started to protest themselves and they started to lobby politicians. So by mid-1982, you have two very strong um, well-resourced and motivated campaigns who are facing off against one another. And in the middle, you've got the politicians. You've got the politicians. And the wording published by, by Charles Hawhey, which is the wording I read out at the um, at the top of the podcast, was a slight, there were some variations there from the original wording which had been proposed by the pro-life campaign and there were some key changes there. One is the, 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 the phrase about the equal right to, to life of the mother plus it's slightly less 
clear on exactly what constitutes life before birth than the original proposal from the pro-life campaign, which which mentioned the words from conception. Um, now, certainly the former one of those, the, 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 the question about the equal right to life of the mother, was argued at the time as automatically setting up potential legal, pro- legal problems in the future. It was. What happened was... Um as you said, there was an election in in, in late 1982, in, 19, in, in November 1982. Um, just before that election, Fianna Fáil under Charlie Hawhey published the wording which we have today. Um, and people in that government said they consulted a lot. Martin Manser has written about meetings he had with the Protestant representatives of the Protestant churches that they had, that they consulted with other groups as well and they put a lot of work into this. And certainly it was a compromise. It didn't go as far as um, the uh, the anti-abortion lobby had initially wanted it to go. Um, but it did accommodate, you know, the vast majority of their concerns. Um, but what happened immediately after that was that how he lost a vote of confidence in the Doyle and the government collapsed. And so, and as a result of that election, Gareth Fitzgerald ended up back in power. So Fitzgerald comes to power, having said during the election campaign that he would hold this referendum, finds himself in government buildings, and the first thing on his in his entry is this very problematic referendum, which he has committed to. Had he committed to to how he's wording? He had. It doesn't come terribly well out of this, Gareth Fitzgerald, I think. There's a lot of dithering. I know he was under huge political pressure. He, he wavered a lot and he was coming from a, under a lot of pressure from different camps within his own party. It became even more difficult for him once he got into government because his Attorney General, Peter Sutherland, had concerns from very early on. Peter Sutherland looked at that wording and he wasn't the only one. There were other lawyers who were pointing this out at, at the time, but Fitzgerald w- or Sutherland was AG. And what he said to Fitzgerald, to Fitzgerald in, a, in a memo around that time was, look, this is far too ambiguous, it's far too confusing, we're storing up problems for the future, um, and and we don't know how this is going to play. If you're balancing, if you're setting two rights at an equal level, then somebody has to, in certain circumstances, weigh those rights and decide which is to prevail. And the obvious answer when you ask, well, who's going to weigh those rights, is the judiciary. And so in a way, some of the concerns being voiced by people like Sutherland at that time were preempting uh, or, or foreseeing what was to happen in 1992 with the yeah, Indeed, and, and, and we'll come to that in a moment. But Sutherland did propose his own wording, um, which actually took, a, took quite a different approach, really, in that it retained the, if you like, it, it, it retained one part of what um, anti-abortion campaigners were looking for, i.e. it would have prevented the judiciary from, from, from intervening and, and effectively making abortion legal, but it left it open for the legislature to make whatever changes it deemed fit. Exactly. Um, and, and a lot of people within Fine Gael, including Michael Noonan, who was Minister for Justice at the time, felt that this wouldn't wash. He felt that this was this didn't go far enough that they wouldn't be able to carry the referendum um, because even though it was preventing, explicitly preventing the judges from introducing abortion and therefore would have got around, would have addressed the concern that the anti-abortion lobby had initially had, which was that we'd have an Irish Roe v. Wade, it left it open for a future more liberal Doyle uh, and Oireachtas to uh, introduce abortion. Noonan and others felt that that was not going to be enough, that they were going to lose the referendum if they attempted it. So there was a, a pretty intense debate that went on over several weeks within government and people lined up on, on either side of the argument. Um, in the end, uh, there was a vote in the Doyle on this alternative wording. Uh, it was supported by Gareth Fitzgerald, who was Taoiseach at the time, but it was defeated. 
Um, and so Gareth Fitzgerald again finds himself in this very difficult situation where he has supported an alternative wording. The alternative wording has been rejected. And so Hawhey's wording comes back into his lap and he has no choice uh, as he sees it but to put it to a referendum. And so the wording that you read out at the beginning is what goes to referendum in 1983. And the reason that alternative uh, wording was rejected, of course, is because Fine Gael TDs like Alice Glenn, who we heard at the start of the show, um, voted against it. And the ensuing campaign, uh, I am old enough to remember, was very bitter. Uh, it was very unpleasant. Um, and it ultimately, ultimately, the referendum was passed by a margin of two to one. Yeah, I think Dermot Ferreter has called this the most poisonous debate that took place in Irish society over the last hundred years, uh, or certainly one of them. Um, it was it was extremely acrimonious. Um, it, it was hugely problematic for Fine Gael in particular because, as you say, the party split, um, and and it, it became very difficult to keep a lid on those on those divisions that had opened up uh, within the party. Um, you also had a lot of people who were linked to Labour and Fine Gael in particular who were warning again and again right up until referendum day um, that this was going to have unintended consequences. In other words, that this referendum was not going to achieve even the objectives that its supporters um, had set, you know, so that this wasn't going to lock down a ban on abortion, that this was going to leave uh, very difficult decisions in the hands of doctors and in the hands of judges ultimately. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And here's Mary Robinson back in 1983 making a pretty similar point about the uncertainty which the wording would lead to. As far as the question of um, uh, <coughs> a possible application for an injunction is concerned, that is a real legal possibility now. We have created a right to life of the unborn. That right is entitled to its remedy. It's entitled to be asserted. It can't be asserted by the fetus for obvious reasons. It can be asserted by a third party. Now, it's important to say, I suppose, that then as now, uh, many thousands of Irish women were travelling every year, mostly to the United Kingdom, in in order to have uh, legal abortions there. Uh, The figures... In the 1970s and the 1980s, the official figures vary anywhere between three and and 10,000 per annum. Um, And the whole question of travel was to rear its head, I suppose, in what was really the first real controversy arising from the amendment, although there had been legal cases about publishing information about abortion overseas. But the, the first real, really kind of political crisis that arose was the X case. That's right. You know, so you had the, pro- the question of travel. If abortion was, uh, was, was banned and unconstitutional in Ireland, um, well, what, was, what about women who travelled to the UK or to Holland or somewhere else? And so the Supreme Court had to deal with that and it did enshrine, the, 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 ultimately the, the right to travel was enshrined as a right. Um, but what happens then in 1992, many years after the, uh, the uh, amendment is passed, is that you have um, this appalling case of a 14-year-old girl um, who was raped and became pregnant and wanted to go to the UK for an abortion. Before she travelled, um, the Attorney General, word made its way to the Attorney General, Harry Whelan, that this was happening. Harry Whelan uh, felt that it was his duty under the Constitution as and as the Chief Legal Officer to the government to uh, vindicate the right of the unborn, which is to say um, to uh, block this 14-year-old girl from travelling to the UK. A lot of politicians didn't agree with him getting involved. A lot of they were pol- furious at him. They were furious at him. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, uh, one, one uh, 
member of the same government said people just couldn't understand why Harry hadn't let the file fall down behind a radiator. In other words, turn a blind eye and let it happen. Because if anybody with any sort of political brain could see what was going to happen, and what was going to happen was that the um, the state went to the High Court, uh, it sought an injunction to prevent this girl from travelling to the UK. Um, she ha- was already uh, in the UK on her way to have an abortion. She returned with her family, with her parents, to Ireland because you know, she didn't want to be prosecuted. Um, and so it goes to the High Court. The High Court, uh, the High Court um, sides with the state. Uh, Declan Costello was the judge. It then goes to the Supreme Court. All of this is fast-tracked because we're working to a, on a very short timeline, of course. It goes to the Supreme Court. And so finally, uh, all these years after the Eighth Amendment, the Supreme Court has to weigh these rights, has to do exactly what people like Peter, Peter Sutherland, Mary Robinson and others were predicting back in 1982-83. They were going to have to weigh these uh, equal rights of life of the mother and the unborn. A key point I, I admitted to mention was that uh, the girl was suicidal. And that, was, that was why the mother's life was, was uh, in danger. And that was why these two rights were activated. And so the Supreme Court finds itself in a very, very difficult situation. And you have these f- five judges of the Supreme Court, um, middle-aged or elderly men, none of them, none of whom would have been seen as particularly liberal on social questions at the time. Um, and, and, and they find themselves dealing with what I think was the most controversial case ever to come before an Irish court in the 20th century. There was intense coverage of this case, intense uh, attention. Uh, from around it, the world. From around the world. Mm. It was on the front pages of newspapers in, in France and elsewhere. Um, it was talked about uh, in the United States. Um, it was the lead item on the news. There were people out on the streets. It's difficult to convey now just how intense it became. And of course, it 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 um, it, it stirred all of these arguments again. You know, the, the arguments that people had been going over in the late in, in the early nineteen eighties, and which had been dormant other than when they came to court um, over other questions in the previous decade. But it, it revived this really impassioned debate uh, between those who are for a more conservative uh, regime on abortion, those who are liberal. Uh, and so these co- judges found themselves in a very difficult situation. Um, the hearing took place over, uh, I think it was two days. Journalists weren't allowed in. Um, so you had the journalist sitting outside the court writing about the case going on without actually knowing what was happening inside the room. Um, ultimately, the decision was taken very quickly. So there was, I think, a day and a half to two days of argument. The judges then retired to their chambers, um, took the decision fairly quickly and agreed that given the circumstances of the case and the urgency of it, that they would give their decision uh, almost immediately after they had taken it. Um, the decision was taken by four to one to allow the girl to travel. Um, and then they worked for a couple of weeks on the, on their on their reasoning and their thinking about the case, and so what that did was um, it in effect undid one of the key principles the anti-abortion lobby thought they were enshrining in the constitution, because it said actually there are certain circumstances in which uh, abortion can be allowed, um, or which in which uh, at least somebody can travel for an abortion. Um, Although the, lo- the logic really of their of, of, of their reasoning was not just that somebody had the right to travel, but that somebody had the right to an abortion. That's right. Yeah. So, some of the judges focused on the right to travel and, 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 um, and found on that ground. But others said, well, the logical 
conclusion of this amendment is not only that there's a right to travel, but that there's a right to an abortion. So even though this girl was proposing to go to the UK, um, they were making a broader finding and saying, uh, well, actually, in certain circumstances, you could have an abortion here um, if, if, if the, 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 the balancing is done and, in a certain way. And indeed, way. That, that, that judgment of the Supreme Court, it took the Irish political establishment or the Irish political system more than two decades to come to terms with the actual legal point raised raised in that in that decision with the protection of life during pregnancy bill uh, passed passed by the last government, which finally enacted the, the consequences of that into law. Exactly, because of course after the eighty three amendment, the government hadn't done anything to um, to enact legislation to give effect to what the amendment said. Um, and in his judgment uh, in the X case in 1992, one of the Supreme Court judges, Neil McCarthy, was excoriating. He was scathing about the failure of the parliament to give effect to what it had instigated in 1983 with the abortion referendum. So nothing had happened leading up to the in the years leading up to the X case. Nothing happened in the years after the X case. Well, there were referendums, though. There were there? referendums. Three, though, refer- three simultaneous referendums on the issue, just to complicate matters. That, that's right. But yet still there was no legislation on the this key issue, which which was uh, what exactly does, in practical terms, uh, does the 1983 amendment mean in legal terms? So the, just, to, just to be clear for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, the, the three referendums dealt with the issues of the right to travel um, in order to have an abortion, the right to information uh, of abortion services overseas, and both those were both those were passed by the people. And the third referendum, uh, as I understand it, tried to close that loophole, in, as as would have been seen by by uh, anti-abortion activists. Um, and that referendum fell. That was a referendum which was proposing that which was proposing that the suicide would not be a um, would not provide a basis for somebody to be able to have an abortion. Exactly, and that was uh, 2002, I think it was. And so that was the, you know, still by that point there had been no legislation on the on the key issue in the X case to give effect, or sorry, rather uh, to the key issues presented by the uh, 1983 amendment. After 2002, similarly, there was no movement. And as you say, it wasn't until 2014 um, when we had a, a Fine Gael Labour coalition um, that finally uh, a government started to grapple with the questions posed by the Eighth Amendment. Um, the Labour Party, I mean, the evolving positions of the political parties are really important to all of this. So what the coalition of Labour and Fine Gael agreed to do was to send the issue to an expert group. Um, and the expert group went away and came up with recommendations. Uh, and on the basis of that, uh, the government set about working on legislation. So it introduced in, in 2014 the Protection of Life in Pregnancy Act. And this set down specifically uh, the, the, the criteria, the processes by which um, an abortion uh, could take place in Ireland, including where there was a risk, uh, where, where there was a risk to the life of the mother, and including by by suicide. And so it wasn't until 2014, all those years after the 83 referendum, that we finally had legislation uh, on abortion. Indeed, and then again during that legal process, there were rifts within Fine Gael, and there were departures or firings from the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, and indeed from the government in the in the form of Lucinda Creighton. Um, so yet again, and one thinks if one were a professional Irish politician and were looking back over this sorry tale over the last 30 years or so, the idea that this issue is always radioactive and always toxic is is clearly going to be apparent. I think so. There's no question but that once the debate on uh, repealing the Eighth Amendment begins in earnest, it's going to be 
extremely acrimonious. It's going to be very intense. Um, I think it's going to remind people uh, in many ways of what happened in 1983. It, you know, it may not be as, in, as intense as it was. Irish society has changed a lot in the last 30 years. Of course it has. But I think um, it would be foolish to underestimate just how difficult uh, uh, this referendum campaign could be. Um, there are certain simple similarities that, there, that are interesting to note between now and 1983. Um, two in particular. One is one you mentioned, which is that the parties internally are not necessarily of one view on this issue. We saw how it opened up fissures within Fine Gael in 2014 when the issue came up. W- you know, we don't quite know how much of that has gone away. Um, depending on what proposal emerges from the uh, Citizens' Assembly, what proposal ultimately the government goes with, we don't know what effect that will have within Fine Gael. Similarly, within Fianna Fáil, there are, there are divisions. Um, Fianna Fáil in recent years has tended to take a more conservative position uh, on, on, on this issue. But who's to say that Fianna, Fianna Fáil won't split too? The second similarity I think is interesting is that we also have a weak government now. We have political instability now. We have a minority government that's reliant on um, independence uh, for its survival. And and so you have a government in much the same way as you had in the early 1980s that is vulnerable to pressure from outside groups and, and particularly groups who can um, who can mobilise a lot of people. And um, that can work in both ways. It's not not only the case that they're vulnerable to people who are arguing um, in favour of the Eighth Amendment, but they're receptive too to arguments that people are making on the other side for repeal of the Eighth Amendment. So I think that'll all play into... Uh, the debate we're going to see over the next few years. And we will see what happens. Ruin McCormack, thanks very much for joining us. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Remember that you can subscribe to this show on iTunes. And if you are on iTunes, please do take a moment to review or rate the show. It helps to get it out to a broader audience. Remember also that you can find me on email at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or on Twitter at hlinehan. But thanks today to our producer, Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. And until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.